0: the role of the denouement in literature. Despite uh, being hard to pronounce and even harder to spell, denouement. <laughs> it's very important. The denouement is the final outcome of the story. And it generally occurs after the climax of the plot. So if you think of your favorite uh, book or your favorite movie, the climax is when the guy finally gets the girl or, or the hero catches the villain after the car chase. But the denouement is the short scene after the climax where things are clarified and where all the loose ends are tied up. So it's when Sherlock Holmes explains to Dr. Watson precisely how he figured out who the culprit is. Um, In Romeo and Juliet, it's when the Montagues and the Capulets agree to stop their rivalry to avoid further tragedy. John chapter 20, the second last chapter of this Gospel, is the climax of John's Gospel. It's the book's conclusion. And it contains the purpose statement for the entire book. And John's purpose in writing the fourth Gospel is not academic. He's written this theological biography of Jesus in order that men and women may believe the truth that the Messiah, the Son of God, is Jesus, the Jesus whose portrait John has drawn for us in this gospel. So look at your Bibles, chapter 20, verse 30. Here's the purpose statement. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Friend, that's true life, eternal life. So, as John writes verse 31 of chapter 20, he comes to an editorial decision. He could end the gospel right here. Or he could wind things down with a postscript, an epilogue, that tells us what happens to the characters in this book while shining a light back on what's come before. And that's just what he does. Uh, but what we need to ask is this. What does John chapter 21, the Numa, add? How is the reader served? What loose ends are tied up by John taking things one chapter further as he relates Jesus' third resurrection appearance to his disciples? I I told some people this week that I was going to be preaching from John 21 this morning, and it was very interesting to hear a consistent response. He said, oh, isn't that the chapter where Jesus is on the beach with the fish? (laughs) Um, What on earth are you going to say? Uh, Friends, there is so much more in this chapter than Jesus on a beach with fish. Uh, This chapter serves as a paradigm of sorts for how Christians are to face suffering. For the faith. And Cindy Doe, sister, as a new Christian, and on the occasion of your baptism, I want to apply this teaching to you in particular. Uh, Through the apostle Peter's life, we see that suffering and Christian discipleship are tied together. Jesus tells Peter that he, Peter, is going to be crucified. For his faith and then Jesus tells him follow me what does that mean Cindy what expectations should you have for your life as a new disciple of Jesus Christ as it regards things like your comfort your freedom your autonomy uh, what room have you made in life sister for, for sacrifice and suffering what room have you made all of us, for sacrifice and suffering as we follow Jesus Christ. Finally, in chapter 21, the Apostle Peter is reconciled with Jesus after his famous threefold denial and given a pastoral commission by the resurrected Lord, which is also a very important loose end to tie up in this gospel. So, let's jump right in. What happens first? We have the resurrected Jesus appearing to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. So look at verse 1 afterward Jesus appeared again or he revealed himself in the Greek to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee it happened this way and then John lists the apostles who are present that morning who witnessed this revelation this disclosure seven disciples in total the first being chapter of verse 2 is Simon Peter and we all know Peter He's the unofficial leader of the Twelve, but he's also the one who denied Jesus three times the night that Jesus was arrested. And it's Simon, Peter, and John, in particular, who come into tight focus in this last chapter. Then we have Thomas, also known as Didymus. And of course, this is the famous doubting Thomas of chapter 20, but it's also the faithful Thomas uh, who saw the resurrected Lord and said, my Lord and my God. Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, which is where Jesus turned the water into wine and healed the official's son. Uh, and then uh, Apostolic Witnesses number four and five are the sons of Zebedee, it says, and that's James and John, John being the author of this book, and two other disciples who are, were not told who that is, uh, but they we read that they were all together, all seven of them. So it's to these men that the resurrected Jesus now appears for the third time in John's Gospel. So we have the appearance without Thomas being present, with Thomas present, and then now here by the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Verse 3. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And I'll have you know... Uh, that I fished all the time growing up. Uh, I lived in the Thousand Islands uh, on the St. Lawrence River and my grandfather was what's locally uh, known as uh, a river rat and that's actually a term of endearment. It's a good thing, it's not an insult. So duck hunting and and fishing and boating, the mighty St. Lawrence was in his blood and it's been passed on to me, I dare say. Uh, Actually, my grandfather, how he fished most of the time was he'd he'd be lying on his couch watching a baseball game and looking out his front door, you, you, there'd be his dock and you'd have two fishing poles in the water. And just, they don't, you know, they bend down and amble out and catch, catch the fish. I don't think that's legal, but that's, that's how river rats roll. They don't care. <laughs> so, all that to say, I'm not approaching this text today as a complete city slicker. I do know something of fish and fishing. So, verse 3. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So, they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And and fishing at night on the Sea of Galilee is actually the best time for fishing. They still do it today. Verse four, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Now that could be because it was too dark and too great a distance to see clearly. We read later that there are a hundred yards offshore, Uh, or it could be just because Jesus looked different. Uh, Taken as a whole, we see this tension with the resurrection appearances of our Lord. On the one hand, Jesus' body can be touched and handled. It bears the marks, the wounds of his crucifixion inflicted on his pre-death body. Uh, The resurrected Jesus not only cooks fish in John's gospel, he eats fish in Luke's gospel. On the other hand, John tells us his body apparently rose through the grave clothes and appears in locked rooms. And sometimes his body is resurrected glorified body is not recognized. Uh, The disciples on the road to Emmaus are are kept from recognizing him, the text says. Mary Magdalene mistakes the resurrected Jesus for the gardener. Why that should be the case, I don't know. Verse 5. He called to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. Uh, So Jesus tells them to shoot the net to starboard. Verse 6. Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now, if my grandfather, the river rat, uh, had been in that boat, he probably wouldn't have appreciated that advice done too much uh, because fishermen don't want to hear this sort of advice. It's coming from people who are standing 100 meters away <laughs> on the shore. Uh, why Peter and his gang heeded this advice, I'm not sure. Maybe they're just tired and frustrated after a night of fruitless fishing. But Jesus says this, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some because he knows that there's a great school of fish on the starboard side, just like he did in Luke chapter 5, when two boats almost sank because of all the fish that they caught. So, verse 6, when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And that gives the apostle John the clue that he needs. Verse 7, then the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is the delightful way that the apostle references himself in this gospel. The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off. He was probably wearing a loincloth or a sleeveless tunic for work. And he jumped into the water. So, here we have Peter hurling himself into the sea, which is a typical impetuous Peter, and, and swimming for the shore, leaving his friends behind to deal with all the fish. Verse 8, The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And, and I think that's a story detail that's just so easy to, to kind of skim over and to skip and not really think about it. Just consider this, though. The risen Lord, the resurrected Jesus, has made his friends a hot breakfast after a long night of work. I find that striking. What, what's, what's the last thing you'd think the resurrected God-man would be doing with his precious time before ascending to the glory that he shared with his father from from eternity past. To, To my thinking, cooking up a fish breakfast for his friends, serving them in this fashion is right at the top of the list. But that's because my estimation of the importance of service, the premium Jesus places upon it and modeled himself is woefully inadequate. I have an inadequate view of this. Uh, This is the same vein, of course, as as Jesus washing his disciples' dirty feet after the Passover meal before going to the cross to die for them. It's consistent. It's of a piece with that. But but I need to ask, Jesus does that? uh, But I feel put out to serve my brothers and sisters by giving up some of my time? I, I feel put out to go that extra mile to serve my wife, my neighbor, God forgive me. This is the resurrected Lord doing this. New City, here's, a, here's sort of a, a post-COVID clarion call to the importance of hospitality and service. We need to get back into the swing of those things again, out of hibernation as the city opens up. Uh, to paraphrase John F. Kennedy, ask not what the church can do for you. Ask what you can do for the members of your local church also tangentially what we're reading here in john 21 this is just a little slice of what the new heavens and new earth will be like i I know this is going way outside the intention of the text but i can think of no reason for this pattern not to continue right breakfast at jesus place in the new heavens and new earth uh, serving one another brothers and sisters in our resurrection bodies for all of eternity I think Jesus is modeling that here, that's what he's doing. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. In other words, I'll cook that for you too. Verse 11, so Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. And to be clear, there is no spiritual, there is no religious uh, significance whatsoever to the number of fish that were caught. Uh, they either divided up the fish for sale, so they had to count them, or someone just exclaimed, you know, can you believe what happened? That's amazing, how many fish are there? Oh, 153, that's, that's it. Um, I, I mention that because sometimes you, you hear preachers getting cute uh, with this number 153. They make it symbolic of all sorts of things, it's not. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And we need to try very hard to put ourselves into their place. Uh, Remember, these men, they're all Jews. And they're still grappling with the strangeness of a crucified and resurrected Messiah. Jesus' resurrection was not an anticipated event that required only enthusiasm right, and gullibility to win adherence among Jesus' followers. Uh, Some people thought that if Jesus died on the cross, it could only be because he deserved it, right? After all, he was pronounced guilty by a Roman court and the Old Testament itself insists that anyone who hangs on a tree is under the curse of God. Uh, But Jesus did not die for his own sins. Rather, the scripture makes clear in both the Old and the New Testaments that Jesus was bearing the sins of others on that cross. He was being punished in the place of others. And his sacrifice so pleased God that God raised him from death. Jesus' resurrection, brothers and sisters, is a form of vindication. Uh, It's proof positive that when Jesus said with his dying breath, it is finished, God the Father agreed. The work of redemption was accomplished. But at this point, Jesus' disciples, are just still grappling with the concept, the very concept of resurrection itself. Uh, We've had 2000 years to get used to the idea. This is brand new for them. Verse 13, Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And now we come to what is the central event of this passage, Peter's reinstatement to service, verses 15 to 19. These are a deeply encouraging five verses. Cindy, uh, you're being baptized today, sister. Uh, This is why we're gathered here this morning down by the beach And and, and every member of New City has read Cindy's testimony, her confession of faith in Jesus Christ, and how by God's grace she came to believe the good news of what God had accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin. Cindy knows that she's a sinner. God says so in the Bible. And and Cindy acknowledges it. She confesses it. Uh, She's broken the law of God a thousand times. And as well, Cindy believes that she has no rightful claim. To God's forgiveness now that sort of thinking goes against the grain of our cultural narrative but it's true the Bible is very clear no one is deserving of God's salvation mercy no one is good enough or could work hard enough to earn God's favor and Cindy knows this she believes this and yet and yet look at her (laughs) there she sits she's happy she's filled with joy and thanksgiving and gratitude this is the day brothers and sisters for celebration because cindy's sins which are many have been forgiven by god and cindy has invited some of you her family and her friends uh, to this special occasion her baptism because she wants you to know how Her sins have been forgiven. Forgiven by the very God whom she has offended in her rebellion. And she wants to hold out that same hope to you. And she wants you to witness this great work of God's forgiveness. Symbolized today in her baptism and in joining the church. But let me put a question to every believer in Jesus Christ here today. Christian, have you ever sinned, as a believer, real bad? I mean, you totally blew it, and now maybe your marriage is hanging by a thread. Maybe you've said something to someone that you never should have said aloud. Or maybe you were caught doing something that drags the name of Jesus, your Savior, through the mud. Something that fills you with shame. Something that's shown you like nothing else, that there are mountains and oceans of remaining corruption in your heart. And if a sinner like you is to be saved on the basis of anything but God's grace His unmerited and favor, then you have no hope. Christian, have you ever sinned so bad and you feel, you, you felt so terrible that in a denial of the grace of the gospel and the love of your heavenly father, you didn't feel like you could raise your eyes heavenward and pray for forgiveness? Have you ever sinned so bad that Satan tricked you into not reading your Bible or praying because you You weren't worthy or holy enough to partake in such holy pursuits, and so you tried resorting to some good works to get back into God's favor, his love. I'll read 10 chapters of the Bible for the next week straight, and then I'll pray. Uh, So, you know, some gospel-denying act of self-righteousness, basically. Uh, Cindy, if that hasn't already happened to you in your Christian life, uh, it will soon, sister, that temptation, and forewarned is forearmed. Uh, What does Jesus want From us in those moments beloved what does he want us to remember how does he approach us never forget the Apostle Peter's reinstatement Cindy Doe be encouraged by this text that's why it's in our Bibles but let's take the time to set this up properly turn to Luke chapter 22 verse 54 this takes place the night before our Lord is crucified. This is setting up the context. Luke twenty-two, fifty-four. 54. Then seizing Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. So that's the setup. Back to John chapter 21. Let's see what unfolds from this now. John 21, 15 when they had finished eating, so he didn't just jump right into it, (laughs) but when he had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And what we need need to do at this point is link the following verses where Peter affirms three times that he indeed loves the Lord Jesus with his threefold denial of his Lord the night that he was betrayed. Uh, Just as Peter denied Jesus publicly, so he is reinstated here publicly. Jesus asks him in verse 15, Do you truly love me more than these? Do you love me more than these other disciples here? These other six that are here today. Because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter boasted that he would lay down his life for Jesus, didn't he? Uh, Peter's boast had been Even if all fall away, on account of you, like pointing to the other 11 disciples, even if they all fall, I never will. Matthew 26, 33. And we see here that Jesus gladly restores this broken man, but he makes Peter face his sin, declare his love, and he receives a commission. So look at verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And that, and that question, I mean, it probes the very depth of his being. Like, how, how, how comfortable would any of us be having this sort of a dialogue with Jesus Christ? Right? I mean, Cindy, can you imagine Jesus asking you just a few minutes before you're baptized today, Cindy Doe, do you love me more than the other members of New City Baptist Church? I mean, how in the world are you supposed to respond to a question like that, right? Can there, can there be a right way to answer that question? <laughs> it's, like a, it's, like a, it's almost like a trap. Um, Peter's wise. In this case, he's wise. Uh, he doesn't try to answer Jesus in the terms of the relative strength of his love compared to the other apostles. Uh, Peter appeals to Jesus' knowledge. He appeals to his omniscience. He knows everything. Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And, and beloved, how many times have we all said that to Jesus? I, I really, I truly dropped the ball, but you, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again Jesus said, Simon son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Despite my failure, right? I love you. you. You know that I do. And and Jesus accepts his declaration and he gives him a commission. Jesus said, feed my sheep. The Lord is saying, your love for me, Peter, and, and the evidence of your reinstatement are to be displayed in your pastoral care for my flock. This isn't evangelism. This is pastoring. Feed my lambs, Peter. Take care of my sheep, Peter. Feed my sheep, Peter. And after all this back and forth, after this confession of love and commission, Jesus tells Peter that his discipleship will one day cost him his life. Look at verse 18. Very truly, I tell you when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. So perfect freedom. But when you are old and here Jesus foretells the future, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus is speaking of martyrdom. Stretch out your hands in the ancient world referred to crucifixion. This stretching took place when a condemned prisoner was tied to uh, his cross member, the patibulum it was called, and he was forced to carry his cross out to the place of execution. Uh, The cross member would be placed on the prisoner's neck and shoulders, his arms tied to it, and then he would be led away to death. Verse 19, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And and what's amazing is that Peter lived and served Jesus for 30 years with this death sentence hanging over his head. Can, Can you imagine? Follow me, Peter. And at the end, I guarantee you that you will be crucified for your faith. And by the time John wrote his gospel, Jesus' prediction had been fulfilled. Peter had glorified God through his martyrdom, probably in Rome, under the emperor Nero. Then he said to him, Follow me. Brothers and sisters, this is the forgotten doctrine of Christian discipleship. I want you to turn with me very quickly to Mark chapter eight. And Cindy, I want to direct this to you in particular, sister. Mark 8, 31. Jesus then began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And after three days, rise again. He spoke plainly about this. So Cindy, picture our, our leader, Our our King, our Messiah, our God, naked and ashamed and despised and nailed to a cross. Cindy, I want you to picture our Lord in your mind's eye hanging on that tree. Because in this text, your crucified King is teaching you that the true nature, the true nature of your Christian discipleship is linked, indissolubly linked, with his suffering Messiahship. The two go hand in hand. Look at verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And to get at the heart of what Jesus is saying here, we need to understand that in this culture, the cross is an image of extreme repugnance. The cross was an instrument of cruelty and pain and torture and death and Dehumanization and shame. Today, of course, I mean, there are crosses everywhere. They're on hospital buildings and schools and church buildings, housing for steeples, necklaces, and earrings. Um, the symbol is ubiquitous now in our culture. It's lost its shock value, it's lost its shameful, odious stigma. But the only people who picked up their cross in this culture were condemned criminals. And if it was your lot to pick up your cross, there was no hope for you. There was only a shameful and excruciating death. But what would it mean if Jesus came to you, Jill, Quinn, Phoebe, Victoria, anybody, and he said to you, strap yourself into the electric chair and follow me. That that message is very clear. I mean, how much triumphalism and self-interest and worldly victory should we reasonably be expecting in this life if the crucified God-man who seals our pardon tells us to follow him in death? Zero. (laughs) Absolutely zero. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Sister Cindy, this is a call which involves taking up the cross of self-denial and shame and disgrace and death, death to self, death to reputation, death to comfort, death to the world, perhaps even physical death. And yet, Jesus' language here, it is not an invitation to spiritual masochism. Don't make that mistake, Cindy. This is an invitation to life, to true Christian discipleship. Uh, This is what life is all about. But we've been so duped, I think, by unbiblical ways of thinking that it looks like a miserable sort of existence. Surely, we tell ourselves, self-focus is where all the bounty and the joy and the contentment and purpose and meaning in life is to be found. Well, no, Jesus says it's an infallible rule of the kingdom that self-focus issues in death. Mark 8.35 Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. While whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Friends, think of the price that these men, these seven men in this text, paid for their intimacy with Jesus Christ. Every single one of them, with the exception of John, were martyred. So, What's your expectations for the Christian life? You follow a crucified Messiah. Cindy, be sure that on this, the day of your baptism, the day of your initiation into the church, that you understand what our Lord has called you to. All of us, every Christian. Peter is none too happy. Look at verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? <laughs> so there, there is something of the old Peter we know and love. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure Peter was real happy. Uh, to hear, to you know, to be reinstated into service, and his denial of Jesus had been forgiven and forgotten. He's, he's entrusted with this new responsibility: feed my sheep, feed my lambs. I'm, I'm commissioning you, Peter. And on the other hand, the the certain prospect of death by crucifixion probably put a crimp in his mourning. Uh, so when Peter sees John, he asks, Lord, what about him? What about this guy? Don't tell me, uh, being your disciple. It's just a walk in the park for the Apostle John here, but I get nailed to a cross? Verse 22. Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Basically, Jesus tells him, Peter, it's none of your business what I have in store for John. Uh, You concern yourself with following me faithfully. Uh, Don't be so interested in my secret counsel regarding John's life and ministry. Which... New City, that's a lesson we all need to take to heart. Uh, But Cindy, I apply this to you directly today. Follow Jesus. Regardless of what paths He designs for His other followers, you follow Jesus. Regardless of the specific forms of obedience other Christians must follow, you must follow Jesus. Bloom where God has planted you. Be faithful, be obedient. Verse 23, because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple, John, would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Verse 24. This is the disciple, that is today, the beloved disciple, John. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true and, and that we could be the elders at the church in Ephesus or the members of John's church, perhaps even identifying themselves with, uh, with the readers, as in all of us know that, we, uh, that what the beloved disciple attests that is true. Or it could be uh, the royal we, the editorial we. John writes in his prologue, we have seen his glory, 1.14. So all those options are good. But the fourth gospel closes now with a reminder that the author has done no more than make a selection from the mass of material that's available. Look at verse 25. He, this is how he ends everything. Jesus did many other things as well if every one of them were written down i suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written john hasn't written all he knows about jesus or all that can be written about jesus if that were the case the entire world could not contain the books he is after all the second person of the triune god right jesus is the word incarnate he was there in the beginning with god he is god Chapter 1 verse 3, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So verse 25, that's not hyperbole, it's no exaggeration on John's part. If all of his deeds were described, the entire planet would be incapable of containing all of the books. And this should take us back one chapter, back to chapter 20. Uh, out of out of the, the denouement that we've been looking at in 21, back to the climax now of John chapter 20. Friend, do you want to get to the very heart of who Jesus is and what his heavenly Father sent him into this world to do? Not, not what the culture or the media or what various religions say concerning Jesus and his mission, but what the Bible itself says about that. Look at chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written. Why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So do you see That's why John wrote his gospel. John's goal in writing his theological biography of Jesus is our personal salvation. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, true life, eternal life. Friends, that is the promise that Jesus holds out to each of us. John wrote those verses 2,000 years ago, but it's still the purpose of the book today, and it's a message. Jesus has commissioned you, Christian, in the power of the Spirit, to proclaim to a lost world. Amen.